going to have our readings now. Um, let's just pray as we come to the word. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, that we can learn more of you, more of ourselves, more of this world um, from it. We pray this morning as we read it that your spirit would speak and that we would grow in love of you and wisdom. Amen. So the first reading is from Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? and also many animals. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 41. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Thanks for being with us. If we haven't met before, uh, I'm Jared. I'm the minister here, and we're really, we're really happy to be uh, worshiping with you. I don't know if any of you have ever seen this film, Saving Private Ryan. It's from, I think, the late 90s. So as always, my cultural references are very up to date. Um, and perhaps the scene in this film with the kind of most moral tension, the, the film is about this group of allied soldiers who are on a mission, this small group of people that have gone through so much together, and they go to take this German outpost, and one of their small number is killed. 
And they do succeed in taking the outpost and they, they actually capture the man who has just killed their best friend. And an argument ensues. Everyone in the small group is committed to murdering this German who has just surrendered to them. Everyone saved one. There's a translator named Upfam. And Upfam begs his colleagues to spare the life of this German, to allow him to surrender. And after a long argument and uh, this kind of growing tension, eventually the captain agrees. He binds the, 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 this, this captured man. He says, you are now a prisoner of the Allied forces. And because they have to continue on their mission, he sends him bound back towards the Allied lines. And he says, turn yourselves into the first patrol that you meet coming up behind us. And we think that's the end of it. However, this German soldier arises again at the end of the story. This same group um, is, uh, finds themselves in the midst of a firefight, and across the battlefield they see the soldier who had surrendered to them, who they had mercy upon, and who they had told to turn himself in. He failed to do that. He returned to the German army, and he is now uh, fighting against them. And in that battle, he kills the very captain who released him. But through a strange sort of twist of fate, Upfam, this man who had begged his colleagues for the life of this German, ends up in the exact same situation once more. He and his colleagues win the battle. The same person comes to him, yet again surrendering, and yet again begging for his life. And Upfam, after a shocked moment of silence, kills the German in cold blood. I was reminded of this when I read a story a couple uh, weeks ago on Sunday after the um, terrorist attack. It was by Giles Frazier. I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with him. He was a Guardian columnist for many years and journalist, and he's also an Anglican vicar. And his, his, his wife and his two children are Israelis. And when he penned this piece, his parents-in-law were in hiding uh, in a bunker uh, in Israel. And the piece is entitled, again, from a Christian minister, Why Should I Love Hamas? And he wrote this. I'm not sure I've even got properly angry yet, though this will inevitably follow. Not just anger, but blazing fury. Then I will have to reckon with those impossible words, love your enemy. If you want to honestly deal with what we read in this, the last chapter of the book of Jonah, what you absolutely must not do is caricature the figure of Jonah. The question that is hanging over the chapter is a simple one. Why is Jonah so resistant to God's merciful grace upon the Ninevites? Why is he so enraged by the idea that they might be forgiven? And it is the harshest of judgmentalism to assume that the reason that Jonah rejects God's gracious forgiveness of the Ninevites is because he is some sort of religious, self-righteous zealot. It is much more likely that Jonah is like one of the people we just heard about in those two stories. Now, we don't know exactly why Jonah is so resistant to God's gracious forgiveness of the Ninevites, but it's probably one or both of these two reasons. First off, it might well be, um, this is Jonah rejecting that compassion, it might well be that Jonah has lost someone in just the same way as the stories we just spoke about. This is a description of the Ninevites from another part of the Bible. The Ninevites are these people, woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. 
The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords, and glittering spears. Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. The Ninevites were an imperialistic, bloodthirsty death cult. And Jonah's resistance to God's forgiveness of them may well be because his family and certainly his country was facing this sort of trauma and he was unable to just forgive it. Or perhaps relatedly, it was because Jonah felt that God's forgiveness and grace towards the Ninevites was the height of injustice and unfairness. See, Jonah was at a, part, a point in Israel's history where for generation after generation, the Israelites had been forsaking God's covenant. God's covenant with them was his set of promises to them that basically said, if you live my way, you will be blessed. If you reject my ways, you will be cursed. And it had particular stipulations. These are the things you must do. And Israel, again and again, broke those stipulations and would therefore receive from God judgment. And yet, how is God going to treat the Ninevites? See, one of the very interesting details of this story that we've already talked about is that at different points in the book, the, the Hebrew deploys a different name for God to make a point. Sometimes it uses the name Yahweh, which is the covenantal name for God, referring to God's relationship with his people, with those who follow him. Whereas sometimes it uses the word Elohim, which is the more generic name for God, sort of God as creator, God just as the one that is over all. And when the Ninevites repent, when they turn from their ways, it doesn't say they repented to Yahweh, it just says they repented to this generic, general God. In the actual covenant, there is a, a pattern, there's a prescribed method by which someone who is a Gentile can, can come and begin to worship Yahweh, the true God. There's certain things they have to do to truly enter into relationship with this covenantal God. How many of those things do you think the Ninevites did in their pseudo-repentance? None. So it may well be that Jonah is saying this idea that this is a genuine repentance worthy of forgiveness is remarkably unfair. Here's how one theologian put it. Jonah might be asking, is that all they did? Why should God respond to this shallow, naive repentance? They neither understood Yahweh, nor Torah, nor faith, nor monotheism. They were still just as pagan, and Jonah suspects just as wicked. Yet God has responded with grace. And in the New Testament, and as Colin told us last week, God genuinely recognized their tiny move towards the true God as a sufficient repentance to respond with grace. And so probably underlying Jonah's rejection is the feeling that this is incredibly unjust. My people are being judged and condemned for not following the covenant. And this people have blatant disregard for the covenant and all they do is say a few nice words of repentance and you've given them grace. The very grace that you've withheld from us. So, before we judge Jonah, before we assume that he's some sort of religious scold for not wanting grace and forgiveness for the Ninevites, it's important that we really reckon with why he was so resistant. See, my spiritual assumption about all of us, every single person without exception, is this. That under the surface, 
there is a battle, there is a war raging in each of our hearts. And the battle and the war is this. One side of us wants to embrace a way and a life and a vision that is rooted in grace and mercy and forgiveness. And another part of us, another little voice deep in our soul, wants a way of life that is built on justice and condemnation and righteousness where those who do wrong get what's coming to them. And that little battle only comes to the surface in certain moments. All of us can say when the sun is out and things are bright, of course I love grace, of course I love mercy, of course I love forgiveness, but then sometimes you get in a moment like this. And then that battle that is going on within bubbles to the surface. Now, probably for most of us, we will not have the profound challenge that someone like Jonah might have faced of, of literally losing perhaps a loved one and having to question whether we can forgive the perpetrator. But Jonah also describes this, this, these moments, these moments where we really find out whether we believe in grace and anything more than name only as a kind of living death, as a kind of experience that makes our own life worse than death. He says, now Lord, take away my life for it is better for me to die than to live. Or when Jonah says, is it right for you to be angry? He says, it is. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. So when do the moments come for us? When do the moments come where we find out whether we really want to live in the path of grace and mercy and forgiveness, or whether we want to live in the path of condemnation and justice? Well, it's like what Jonah experienced. Sometimes it's when we feel like we are betrayed betrayed in the most profound ways by people that we love, that we trusted, and that turn against us. And in those moments, there's a real question. Do I want forgiveness or do I want condemnation? Sometimes there's a different kind of death. There's a kind of death of our character. Sometimes people will come to us and they will say things about us and they will criticize us and they will, they will condemn us and they will do a sort of public execution of our character before all those we love. And the question is, do we want forgiveness for them? Or do we want justice? Sometimes people will be incredibly unjust and unfair and they will place expectations upon us that they would never place upon themselves. And in those moments we decide, do we truly want grace and mercy and forgiveness? Or do we want something else? And the truth is, we live in a culture that makes Choosing the way of grace, incredibly difficult, because we are sort of daily taught by our culture, by our society, to believe in the very opposite, to believe in a world that is drenched in justice and condemnation. Now look, you can call it whatever you want, and we would probably argue if we get into the, the specific terms, but we live in, a, in what is sometimes called a cancel culture or an outrage culture. We live in a culture that is very, very good at exposing someone who does something wrong and condemning them and shaming them. Sometimes the way this is described by a lot of different commentators is that we have kind of a secularized Christian view of justice. We have the deeply moral worldview of Christianity where there is good and there is bad, there is righteousness and there is sin, only we have a secularized version of it with a different set of values. But the problem is we have that Christian view of sin and of judgment, but we don't have a secularized version of the gospel. We don't have a secularized version of grace. And therefore, we know how to condemn someone when they have done something wrong. But we have no idea as a culture how to know when someone has made atonement and when they can be forgiven. 
And I would go so far as to say that most of us don't, and this is maybe the most provocative thing I'm gonna say, that most of us don't even know what forgiveness is. Forgiveness has been actually replaced by a substitute that masquerades as forgiveness, but isn't true forgiveness. See, when we think about forgiving someone, what we usually think is that we can, if we come to explain and therefore justify a certain action, then we can move on and be reconciled. And we call that forgiveness. What I mean by that is this. We say, if, 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 if I, me and someone aren't getting along, let's say, let's say even the most profound relationship, but let's say me and my father aren't getting along, I feel like my father has wronged me. If we can come together and I can understand why he acted the way he did, and perhaps I can understand that my father was unkind to me because his father was unkind to him, then suddenly I can understand why my father acted the way he did, I can justify it, and then we can have a relationship together. Is that a good thing? Absolutely. Wonderful thing. Is it forgiveness? No. What I've just done is I've explained why he acted the way he did, I've begun to understand it, I've justified it, and therefore we've been able to move on. That is a wonderful, good thing to do. But the problem is this. What happens when someone does to you, does something to you that can't be explained away, that can't be justified, that can't be understood just by sympathizing? What about when someone does something to you that is wrong, that feels utterly unforgivable? That's where the question of forgiveness arises. If something doesn't feel unforgivable, it doesn't require forgiveness because forgiveness isn't about justifying or explaining or understanding. It's about looking at something in all of its heinous injustice and inexplicability and choosing nonetheless to forgive. That is what it means to choose the way of grace. And that is an incredibly difficult calling. Now, I'm gonna talk in just a second about how we can form our hearts to live in that way, in that pattern, but I do wanna make a quick caveat before we move on, because what, that, what forgiveness is not the same as is reconciliation. See, oftentimes we hear that word forgiveness and we think, oh, what you're saying is no matter what anyone does to me, no matter how much they hurt me, I must forgive them and therefore I must be willing to be in a relationship with them, I must be willing to be reconciled with them, I must be willing to continue living alongside them. And that is not true at all. You can forgive someone and say, I I'm not gonna hold this against you and yet because of how heinous what you have done is, I can't have a relationship with you, I can't walk alongside you, maybe we can never have a relationship again. That is completely compatible with forgiveness. We owe everyone forgiveness, but that's not the same as reconciliation. Okay, here's the way C.S. Lewis put it. Forgiving someone doesn't mean that you must necessarily believe his next promise. Even if someone says, I've changed, I'm different, have me back, you can forgive them and ultimately say, I don't believe you. No. What forgiveness does mean, however, and this is the very challenging bit, is that you must make every effort to kill every taste of resentment in your own heart, every wish to humiliate or hurt him or to pay him out. So if this is true, what do we do? What do we do in those moments where this inner struggle within all of us rises to the surface and we see in ourselves the same thing that was going on in Jonah's heart? We see that oftentimes we actually don't prefer grace and mercy and forgiveness. We prefer a different way, a way of judgment and of condemnation. 
Well, interestingly, Jonah 4, I would say, is actually a kind of uh, suggestion or a proscription of a spiritual practice that you can do, that you and I can do, that will actually help to root your heart into grace. It actually gives us something to do, and it doesn't by showing us what happens in Jonah's life. Jonah 4 is kind of an, an enacted parable. It's a real, Jonah lives a parable. God puts him through a parable to show him what to do if you are rejecting this path of grace and mercy and forgiveness and choosing another way. And he does it through this plant. Here's what happens. Jonah made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. Now, this is really important. Jonah is out in the city, outside of the city, angry at what is going on, and he builds himself a booth or a tent or a tabernacle. It's all one word for the same thing. And he builds it to protect himself from the elements, to give him shade. And yet, it says that actually his true source of shade was from this plant that God had provided for him. And eventually, God kills the plant that he had graciously offered. And the sun comes and the wind comes, and Jonah becomes incredibly angry. God says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, it is. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. And God responds, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for that great city of Nineveh? See, in Jonah's heart, a sort of conflation happened. Jonah thought, I am owed shade. Why? because I worked very hard. I'm not like those lazy Ninevites. I worked very hard, I built my own tent. This is to protect me and therefore I am owed protection. When in fact, God was saying, despite all your supposed efforts, the only reason you were ever protected, the only reason you ever had shade is because I was giving you undeserved help. I was being gracious to you, though you were unaware of it and you were taking credit for it in your own heart the whole time. And then, remarkably, God appeals directly to Jonah's kind of deepest emotions. God asks Jonah, why are you so angry? And Jonah responds demanding that God validate his feelings. In essence, he says, if I feel this terrible, you must have wronged me. You must have done something wrong. And how does God respond? Interestingly, he doesn't challenge Jonah's own emotions. He responds with emotions of his own. That word concerned, or can be translated compassion, is a remarkable Hebrew word. God basically says, you think you're angry, you think you're in distress, how do you think I feel? This is the way Hebrew Bible scholar Walter Moberly describes that term. The Hebrew term is has. The primary resonances of this term compassion are with the human phenomenon of a tear coming to the eye, the spontaneous and unpredictable bodily response to other creatures in need. One needs no special intelligence to recognize and understand the tear that shows the care of the heart. God comes to Jonah and he says, if you are that angry because you don't have the grace you feel is owed to you, why should I not be weeping? when I see an entire city who is not the recipient of my compassion. Interestingly then, there is a method 
there is a practice which God is suggesting if you want to grow your heart in the way of grace. What he does for Jonah is he says, the way you can grow in your compassionate heart for other people is when you think about the fact that despite what you oftentimes claim, you yourself are a recipient of grace. That you yourself desperately need the same mercy and forgiveness that you hesitate to claim for others. And therefore, the Christian practice that we have to allow ourselves to grow in grace is confession. It's coming to God and being reminded again and again that we too are desperately in need of the same grace and forgiveness that we hesitate to give to others. And what we do when we do that process genuinely, when we don't do what I talked about before and just explain away the things we've done wrong, when we don't just justify it, and say, yes, I've, sure, I've done some th bad things, but that's only because of the other things to me. When we face full in the face the fact that you and I have done things that feel to others unforgivable, and when we confess them, and we bring them before the Father's face, and instead of receiving condemnation, we see, metaphorically, a tear come to his eye, and the depth of his compassion for us, that's how we begin to be remade. We begin to be able, bit by bit, to choose the way of grace, not only for ourselves, but also for others, rather than the path of condemnation. So I have one final thought before we end. Uh, I was on holiday this week, as last week. So a lot of you I know that are undergrads had your, your reading week. And when we were on holiday as a family, we went and we kind of got an Airbnb, right? So we had hired out this place. And my youngest daughter, Eloise, um, she has a habit, okay, where she just pulls lots of toilet roll and throws it into the toilet. She does it all the time, just pulls off toilet roll. So I walked into the toilet, okay? And don't worry, it's not gonna be a weird story, okay? And I look in the toilet and there's just a lot of toilet roll in there. So I said, okay, classic Eloise. And so I flush the toilet. And to my horror, I see under the, to the toilet paper an entire roll of toilet going down and being sucked up into the toilet. So I just push, no shame, put my hand down there, try to pull it out, you know. I'm, but it's not. It's gone. It's completely clogged the toilet. There's no coming back. And when you have completely clogged a toilet in someone else's house that you're hiring for holiday, okay, the true character of everyone in your party comes out, okay? They're true. And because there are, in my view, in that situation, there's only two types of people in the world, okay? There's one group of people, and some of you are here, and you think in that situation, what we need to do is very simple. We just need to get a hold of the host and we need to explain that we've made a little mistake and we are very sorry and we'll, everything will be fine, right? Those people are stupid. And then there is the rational people, okay? And what the rational people do is they say, I don't care what it costs. I don't care what it takes. We are fixing that toilet and we are never, ever, ever speaking of it again. And that is Becky and I's approach, okay? So we, are, we, we start plunging the toilet as fast as we can. I'm like, I'm gonna buy some acid and pull it down the toilet and dissolve this thing. Doesn't matter what's gonna happen. And then about 20 minutes later, we get a knock on the door from the people downstairs. There's water rushing into their flat, yeah. So at that point, even I said, okay, we need to tell the people. And how do you think I felt after I told them? I went from being so stressed and feeling guilty. Honestly, and Becky and I were talking about afterwards, like we are like little guilty children. Our child made a mistake and we are like, we are so terrible. How can we, we'll never be forgiven. We're going to jail. <laughs> Two, as soon as I told the person, I said, I'm so sorry, this is what happened. I just felt, a, I felt completely fine. I'm sorry, we made a mistake. Please forgive us, we'll do whatever it takes. I felt so much better. 
So how do you think you would feel if your worst things, you stopped hiding, you stopped trying to explain away, you stopped trying to justify, you brought them out in the open, you brought them to God, and what you received was not judgment, not condemnation, but a heavenly father with a tear in his eye who is welcoming you in. I remember someone when I was a teenager said something to me I've never forgotten. They said, the best thing that could ever happen to you is if your worst traits and your most significant sins were put on the news for everyone that you know and love to see. Imagine the liberation, imagine the freedom. If you no longer had to hide, if you never had to hide ever again, and if you were received into your father's loving arms. That's why, by the way, Jonah 4 is drenched in the imagery of Jesus Christ. Lamentation says the anointed, that just means the Messiah. Messiah is just a name, just a way of saying anointed. The anointed of the Lord is he of whom we had said, under his shade we shall live among the nations. The way in which Revelation depicts the end of all things. And he who sits on the throne will pitch his tent over them. They shall hunger no more and thirst no more, nor shall the sun strike them, nor any heat. And what is this protection? What is this guarantee of forgiveness and of flourishing? It's that as John's gospel said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling or his tabernacle or his tent among us. So let's take a few moments to come to this table to receive the guarantee that we do not need to justify or explain or prove ourselves. We do not need to create a shade that protects us from all that we've done wrong. We are offered it freely by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so I'm gonna invite you as we do so to do something fairly bold, something fairly courageous, which I suspect some of us will not have the courage to do. Let's do this practice together. Let's confess. But let's not confess something that we can explain away. Let's not confess just something that, that, that we think is understandable that we've done. Let's pray and seek and ask, is there something that I have done that feels unforgivable? Is there something I have done that cannot be explained, that is just wrong, that I can bring to the light and stop hiding from? So let's confess as we prepare to come to the table.